series, I'd have to say that this is one of those series where I've and we've received lots of positive feedback and good comments about how it's been a real blessing to people. And as I've, I've tried to consider and think about why that is, I guess the way that I'm going to um, sort of explain and what I've come to realize is it's kind of like why most people sleep with some light on in the near vicinity. Um, how many of you uh, sleep with a night light either in your room or at least in the hallway nearby? Raise your hand if you've got a light somewhere nearby. How about uh, a bathroom light or uh, some... How about the light of the moon? Anyone light of the moon? I mean... I would propose, you don't think you sleep with a light on, or you don't think you have lights on, but very rarely is, is people in a room where there is no light and you cannot see anything. You can still see things even if there are no lights on, right? And the reason why that's more comfortable and why you get claustrophobic when you cannot see anything is because you're not sure what's right in front of you. You're not sure what might be lurking there. And so to have at least a little bit of visibility is helpful. Have a light shine or shone on things. And that's what this series is doing. Is that sometimes we get into the darkness of these lies that we believe and we feel trapped and we don't know what's wrong and why am I feeling this way and why is my relationship with God feeling this way and why is my relationship with others going this way? And what God's been doing is like switching on the hall light turning on the nightlight, and he's exposing the things that sometimes lurk and allowing us to better understand what's there and to give us his direction and how to break free from them. Now, from the very beginning of this series, I've told you that we're not going to be able to get to every single lie that we find ourselves believing. Only five of them uh, did we have time for. But before we get into today's, I want to give you a helpful tool so that you can better go home. It's kind of like do-it-yourself lie finder, okay? That you can go home and find the lies for yourself and, and then apply God's word to it. Here's how you do it. Examine the areas of your life where you overreact. Examine the areas of life where you overreact with anxiety, with fear, Men, with anger, with uh, um, sadness, whatever area of life you tend to overreact, usually, nine times out of ten or 99 times out of 100, the reason you're overreacting is because there's a lie that you're believing and a truth of God that we're forgetting. Use that. Take that home. Think about that. What lie might I be believing that's causing me to overreact, okay? Now, so for today, we're going to be looking and unpacking a lie that I know um, that I find myself falling trap uh, into or to, in believing. And as I've lived in this area now for over a decade, um, I know something about people who live in this area because I'm one of them, is that you guys uh, likely have either a little bit or a lot fallen into this trap and this lie too. Here's the lie. That bigger and better equals happier. Or another way to say that is that bigger and better equals more content, equals more satisfied. And there's a couple angles on this. I'm going to uh, address the first one um, first and real quickly, and that's this. 
the, the lie says this, that as the stuff that I have or the more success that I have or the more things I accomplish um, or as the bank account grows, that I will be happier and I will be more content. And we've looked at this a few times over the years, and what we found is this, that that never works. And the reason is, is because contentment or discontentment is most identified or compared to an appetite. And the more you feed an appetite, what happens to the appetite? It gets bigger. And so the reality is that the bigger and better that you have, the more you desire bigger and better. And so feeding an appetite never works. Trying to get rid of discontentment by adding stuff into your life, that doesn't work either. Maybe for a week or a day or a month, but it doesn't solve discontentment ever. We've looked at that before. The angle we're going to look at today with this lie is this. When it comes to bigger and better, what's your point of comparison? When it comes to bigger and better, what do you compare things to in order to know what is bigger and better? And the reality is that nine times out of ten, again, or 99 times out of 100, what we're comparing, to, comparing things to is the people that are around us. <clears throat> bigger and better than the things that people have or the things that people are doing, the people around us. And as I was studying for this uh, message, um, one pastor put it this way that most people are on a never-ending, never-truly-satisfying quest for er. Now, you may not know what I'm talking about. You probably don't. Er. Not just big, but I need bigger than them, or bigger than what I currently have. We're all in the quest for er. And so you go, you've got your 42-inch flat screen that you watch, you know, football game on, and then you get invited over to your friend's house, and they have a 60-inch flat screen, and, and now you want bigger. And you go back to your 42-inch, you're like, I can barely even see the guys. It's so small now. I need a bigger TV because I need bigger. It's not just good, it's better. You know, when you first got a car... Right? Point A to point B. If it ran and started, that was awesome. Then you get older, you look around, you rode in your friend's car, your relative's car that had heated seats and a smooth ride, and you're like, good isn't good enough, I need better. Not just tall, taller. So when you moved into your house, your townhouse, eight house, eight and a half foot ceilings in the, in the living room, man, that was cool, you know? It keeps, rain doesn't come in. I mean, it, this is nice. Then you go to your neighbor's house, and they have like 10 or 11-foot ceilings or even worse, vaulted ceilings. And you go back to your house, and you're like, oh, man, I think I'm going to hit my head. It's so low in here. I need taller. Is this just me? Do you ever have a quest for er? Skinnier, prettier, cooler. Faster, smarter, more talented, er, <laughs> more successful, er. 
And it's not just even us, is it? We find ourselves then sort of putting this onto the people around us. We want our spouse to be er too. And we want our marriages to be er. And then you have kids and we start putting er on them, especially if you talk to other parents, right? Because in most of the time, it's just mothers or fathers doting on their kids. But as we're listening, we're hearing, you know what, my, my child, guess what? They're only this age, and they're reading at this level, and they've skipped a grade, and they play sports. But yeah, but we play him up because, you know, he just, he's, he's er. And, and we tell ourselves that we just want our spouse to reach their full potential. We just want our kids to reach their full potential. <laughs> and sometimes that's kind of true. Most of the time it's not. Most of the time it's not even about your spouse or your kids. It's about you wanting er in your life. Is this resonating? Maybe it's only a lie that I believe sometimes. <clears throat> the reality of this quest for er is that we continually compare ourselves to others to find how we should feel about ourselves. That we continually look around to see how we fit in the grand scheme at work with what we have, what we're doing, who's excelling, who's climbing, and then based on that and the er, that dictates how we feel about ourselves. And this other thing happens that is very ugly and, and, and very uh, embarrassing. And we talked about it briefly on Ash Wednesday, but, but here's what happens. That when we are on a quest for Ur, it becomes very difficult, not impossible, but it becomes very difficult to be happy for people around you that are doing well. We might like the picture or the statement, and we might say the right things, but when we're looking to the left and right all the time, our hearts are not happy because they have more er than we do. And we might think that this is just a 21st century America problem or it might just be a, a 21st century problem. But the reality is, is that this has been something that's been going on for a long time. In fact, one of the wisest men who ever lived, he lived about 3,000 years ago, the wisest man besides Jesus, his name was Solomon. And as he was getting into old age, he, he spent some time to reflect back on his life and to also sort of examine how people work and how people lived. And he came to some conclusions that so hit what our issues and what our problems are today with this lie. And before I read the words, I want you to know that Solomon was a man who had lots of er. In fact, he just didn't have er, he had est. He was in the world the richest, and he was the wisest, and he was the, the powerfulest, okay? And yet listen to this man who had it all and his perspective as he views people. We turn to Ecclesiastes 4. Uh, Solomon wrote, and, as I, and I saw as he studied the world and studied life, I saw that all labor and all achievement spring from a person, a man's envy of his neighbor. That's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? 
And I was trying to think, is that true? And maybe we could think of some, um, some certain instances that don't quite fall into line with this. Solomon's point necessarily isn't necessarily that it is in every single case, but what he did see is that most of the time, if you examine your heart, most of the time, our striving for achievement in some way or another can be related to the envy of other people around us, to this thing that we do of looking to our left and looking to our right and finding our self-esteem and confidence and of who we are comparatively to the people around us. And here's what Solomon has to say about it. He says this is meaningless. He looks at this. He says it's a chasing after the wind. Have you ever tried to chase the wind? No. Why? Because he can't do it. This type of thinking, even though we fall into it, God wants you to know through Solomon, it, it's meaningless. It doesn't work. It doesn't bring happiness. It doesn't bring contentment. Looking to the left and looking to the right to find who we are and how we fit into the grand scheme does not work, and it never will bring happiness. And if, if you're wondering about this, is there a certain level... <laughs> Remember, Solomon was est. This is written by a guy who has more than you ever will, that achieved more than we ever will. And yet he looks back and says, even with the est that I have, it's meaningless. So our, our simple first point for breaking free from this lie that bigger and better equals happier is this, that looking to the right and left doesn't bring contentment doesn't bring happiness. It doesn't bring true self-confidence or self-worth. And as I uh, say this and as we listen to Solomon, you, you might be pushing back a little bit in your heart. You might be thinking, well, is it wrong for me to want to have a, a little prettier of a house? Is it wrong for me to want to, to look a little better? Is it wrong for me to... And the answer is no. Not wrong. The answer is where, the question is, where is your heart? We have some type A personalities in this room. I'm not going to name them, but you know that I know who you are. And the type A personalities in this room are thinking as you hear this. Does that mean that I can't strive for doing my best? I mean, I, I want to do my best. Does it mean that I just need to sit there, fold my hands, and do nothing? And Solomon knew you were thinking that, type A's. Because here's what he wrote. Next verse. He said, the fool folds his hands, and when he does, he ruins himself. Again, it's not about doing your best. Solomon says, you're a fool. If you just sit there, are lazy, you don't strive to use your gifts to the best of your ability, that's not what we're talking about. It's not sit there. It's not don't do your best. What is he talking about? Look at verse 6. He gets to the heart of it. Better is one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Have you ever known any really, really unhappy rich people? 
That's a rhetorical question. <laughs> we all have. You might be one of them. Have you ever known some very peaceful, seemingly poor people? It doesn't matter what you have. You're either happy or you're not. You're either content or you're not. And when Solomon looks at this, he says, a fool folds his hand and does nothing. But I want you to know that better, it's better to have one handful, not quite as much, and to have tranquility, peace, than to have a lot more, two handfuls, and yet your life is filled with toil and a chasing after the wind. I'd much rather, you'd much rather have this than this. <laughs> so the question is, how do we get tranquility? I was thinking, what if we all moved away from Lakeville and we all moved to like the middle of nowhere, maybe Africa, and we all got huts, you know, that we lived in, we only go into town and see people about once a month, okay, no electricity, no internet, we just all move to Ethiopia or something. Honestly, that would help, wouldn't it? We're not going to do that. What do we do? Well, I think God's word has a light to shine in on this. And I'm going to tell you before we get there, this isn't an easy thing to do. You're not going to go home today and be all so, no, I have tranquility all the time. But what we are going to do is continually come back to this when you're feeling like this instead of like this. Galatians chapter 4, these are some words that Paul wrote um, about uh, us and about the great love of our Lord. He wrote this, when the time had fully come, that is when God's timing was exactly right, he sent his son, Jesus, who was born of a woman, who chose to be born under law, even though he was God, he didn't need to be born under law, to redeem those who are under law. Um, let's talk about being born under law and being under law. What this means is that you were born accountable to God and accountable to his law or his direction. You're accountable to someone, not just your wife. <laughs> You're accountable to God, all right? It also means, born under law, that he's given us his law, not only in the word, but he's also given it to us in our hearts. That you and I were born with this knowledge of what is right and what is wrong. What this means is, I didn't need to tell you that those ill feelings you have towards people who have more at times, or uh, I didn't need to tell you that was wrong. You knew that. Why? Because you had the law written on your heart. And what it also comes with that law written on your heart is a knowledge that I'm not perfect. It comes with the knowledge that my relationship with God on my own is not great. What it comes with, this being born under law, is the knowledge that there's kind of a void in my life. There's a hole in my life. Because I don't always do what I should and I don't always do what I shouldn't. You know how people try to fill this void? They don't realize that it's a broken relationship with God. And so they try to fill it with all the things of this world sometimes. And in fact, even though you know God and you know Jesus as your Savior, we fall back into the exact same thing to fill this void of insufficiency or, or continuing to fall into sins that we don't want to. We try to fill it with stuff and accomplishments and hope that we feel better. But the problem is 
it never will work because it's a broken relationship with God that can only be fixed one way. Paul wrote, to redeem those under law that we might receive something. The full rights of sons. I mentioned earlier that it's easy for us to think about the blessings that come with being a Christian as future blessings in heaven. God says it changes how you feel about yourself right now. And how does it change that? It says that it tells you that you are God's child. If uh, you grew up with the King James Version, which you'd have to be much older than I if you did. Um, as I'm just joking. I'm not, that's not an old joke or anything. I'm just, I'm just saying. Um, receiving the full rights of sons in the King James Version was receiving the adoption of sons. When you're born into a family, you kind of had no choice, right? These are my parents. (laughs) When you're adopted, a choice was made. And in fact, back in this era, adoption was not of newborns. The reason, in part, and you can look this up online, in part was because newborns often died. So people wouldn't adopt little kids until they knew that they would survive because being a little child was such a a dangerous thing. There are so many diseases around. So you'd you'd adopt a teenager. You'd adopt even an early 20-something. And with that adoption, that choice comes an older person, but also someone that you see more of their warts, more of their insufficiencies, more of that comes out. They're not as cute and cuddly as a little newborn, right? And yet, people would adopt. That's what God did. He sent his son, Jesus. He knows your warts. He knows your insufficiencies. He knows how you look left and right all the time to find your self-esteem or your place in life. And he adopted you anyway. Jesus died so that you would be his child. This isn't a right in the sense that we deserved it. (laughs) It's a gift that God gave through faith. Not all of us have great relationships with our fathers either, so this comparison sometimes can get skewed or can not have the impact that God meant it to have. And so Paul continued in verse 6. Because you are sons, God sent the Holy Spirit of his Son into our hearts, and it's the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. This word Abba is the same word that Jesus used in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was praying for the Lord God to take the cup from him. And the reason why there's this this word in here that isn't English, Abba, is because when Paul was writing, he was writing in Greek. Well, when he came to the, the word Abba, there was no Greek equivalent. The best equivalent he could come up with was father in the Greek, but that didn't really hit the sense of Abba and the closeness of relationship with God the Father, so he kept Abba in there. I don't know if there's a perfect equivalent in English either, but there's probably some things better <clears throat> excuse me, than father. One of them would be dad. That's what Paul's writing. The spirit who allows us to say to God, the creator of the universe, dad. And maybe even closer than that is this word that you don't use after you're like five years old because it just sounds weird. 
And the only time I've ever heard it used is normally when a, a grown daughter has this really close relationship, really, really close relationship with her father. But otherwise, you only use it like two, three years old. Or daddy. And that's Abba. That the Spirit allows us, through Jesus' sacrifice, to know that amongst all the billions of Christians who've ever lived, that we have a personal relationship with God and that he invites us to call him Daddy. Daddy. That feels weird to say. Dad. Our second fill-in. Don't look around for contentment or happiness. Look up. Contentment's an appetite. You'll never fill it looking around. Look up. And hear what Paul writes, that God has invited you through his spirit into a relationship with him where we are able to call him daddy. This is an amazingly great love of God's that he has as our father. And um, made me, me think about my, my grandma Felons. Um, she's now in, in heaven, and I look forward to seeing her um, again someday in heaven. But um, she was the type of grandma who her kids or her grandkids, they could do nothing wrong. And so as I was younger, when I was younger, I was like, oh, her kids and grandkids are pretty perfect. I mean, she's just blessed to have perfect grandkids. And as I got older, I started to see what was really going on because there were times where she'd be describing a situation about maybe her son or about her granddaughter. And I'd be like, and I would never say this, but I was thinking it, like, Grandma, I don't think you're seeing this real straight. I don't think you understand what's really going on. In fact, I think that if this person wasn't related to you, you'd have an entirely different opinion about what the mess he got himself into. It was almost as if love blinded grandma's eyes to see in her kids and grandkids things that weren't even reality. Is that how God is? Is he just like a, a grandma who just decides to be blind? No, God is not blind. God is not the, the elderly grandfather who doesn't understand reality. Ooh, I, I got this one by him. But here's what does happen. He acknowledges that his view has been altered. Because he views you not as you are, but as you are now through his son. He knows his view is altered. And when the people around you look at you, they don't see someone that great. But God is looking at you through faith in his son and through Jesus' sacrifice. And you and I need to see ourselves through his eyes. Is there room to grow? Should we at times be walking closer? Do we still sin? Yes, yes, and yes. But that's not what we're talking about right now. We're talking about people who have self-esteem issues, who are looking around at everywhere else to find who they are and to fill the hole. God says, I want you to look at yourself through, through my eyes. 
I remember when I was in high school, I was going through a, a rough couple weeks, and, and my mom told me how she views me. And maybe you've had a parent that's done the same. Like, if you would just see yourself the way that I see you, God's saying, if you would just see yourself and the blessings that you have and the things that you're able to do and the, 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 the success, so to speak, that you've had, if you would just see yourself through my eyes, son, daughter, stop looking around. I don't compare you to other people. You're fine because you're mine. You're fine because through Jesus you're mine. So as we break free from this lie, the last thing that I, I want you to do is I want you to see yourself through the eyes of God. When you're struggling with who you are, when you're having a challenge with uh, sin that just the guilt is sticking with you, see yourself through the eyes of God. And as we do, what will happen is that we'll be more tranquil. And we'll be able to realize that one hand with tranquility is better than a whole lot with toil. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, um, we thank you that you give us this opportunity through Jesus to call you Daddy. Lord, thank you for always hearing me. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for being with me every day. Lord, help me to stop looking around so much, but to look up each day, to see myself through your eyes, and to find joy and, and tranquility in that. Lord, we take just a moment to bring you um, different prayers or requests or thanks that we might have in our heart. We uh, share those with you um, in private prayer. We ask this in Jesus' name and uh, continue by praying. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. At this time